Good morning, church. It's uh, incredible to be here with you on Palm Sunday. We are uh, just a week away from Easter, and we have been walking uh, through this series that I, I hope you've enjoyed. I have very much enjoyed the life of Jesus, focusing on really really about the last 90 days of his uh, life and ministry and the story there. And um, I'm so grateful for you going on the journey with us. And um, there's been a lot of story. Today will be some story time. Um, I also want to thank uh, North Point is a, a church that we network with sometimes and about half of uh, half of the uh, stuff from this came from some ideas from them too. And so I always want to give credit, but say thanks and then give credit to Jesus because uh, his, uh, his heart and his voice in the scriptures has really come alive, I think, as we've had this conversation. And so I'm grateful. I've enjoyed it. <clears throat> and uh, it's been a, been a fun thing. And we've been talking about stories of the life of Jesus. And I was thinking about the power of a great story. And I don't know about you, but uh, but I always enjoy a great uh, story. I think there was a, a, a sneak reveal, uh, what do you call it, uh, before a movie comes out uh, for the last Star Wars movie this weekend, and people were freaking out, and uh, because people enjoy the story, uh, you know, some of the epic stories in Hollywood are all coming to a close this weekend. I kept seeing article after article about storylines and stories and stories, and people are moved by great and fantastic stories. And I was thinking about the elements of a great story. Uh, the elements of a great story, you need a hero, right? And you need an obstacle. And then he overcomes that obstacle to achieve, or she, I'm sorry, or he overcomes, come on now, church, that obstacle in order to achieve the goal. And, and, uh, and you know, the, all the twists and turns along the way will make sometimes for a great story. And, <clears throat> and, you know, you all know some people who can tell a really good story, and we enjoy listening to their stories and hearing from them. But I remember... Um, uh, not everyone can tell a great story. I was a junior in high school, and one of my friends, uh, she began dating a guy who was kind of a storyteller. And I, uh, let's see, I should protect his name since we're going to put this online. We'll call him Keith. So Keith loved to tell a good story. And the funny thing about Keith, she, we're juniors in high school, and he's a senior, and, and uh, we're getting to know this guy, and he would tell the wildest stories. And his stories were things like, so last weekend, I went up in a helicopter, and we threw a tennis ball down a mountain, then rappelled out of the helicopter, and first one to get the tennis ball won. That was his story. And we're like, um, Keith, you didn't do that. That's not a thing that happened last weekend. <laughs> And then he'd tell the story again, and it'd get better. Oh, it was snowing on the mountain, and they propelled out. And I'm like, did you watch James Bond this weekend? Like, what happened? Like, the story changed, and pretty soon it was a race, and, like, you know, someone didn't make it. And every time he told the story, come on now, it got a little bit better and a little bit wilder. And we're all looking around, and we're like, we just, bro, we don't believe your stories. <laughs> they're, not, they're not true. And so sometimes I think what happens to us is we hear stories that have incredible elements, and our kind of our detector of nonsense kicks in and we go, okay, well, there's some elements of the story I'm okay with. And there's some elements of the story that I'm not sure how I feel about that. And, and we've been telling some pretty incredible stories. If you've been uh, on this journey with us the last several weeks, you've been hearing some pretty amazing, incredible, dynamic stories. It's important for you to understand where these stories come from in the scriptures. You've got four accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, individual 
letters written about this three-year window of Jesus's life from eyewitness accounts and investigators who went on a journey and investigated and wrote historically accurate uh, story about depicting the life of Jesus. And so today, as we kind of dive in, I'm going to actually pull from all four accounts, four individual stories being told about the life of Jesus. And so you're going to get a ton of scripture today. In fact, very seldom do I say this, but I would actually encourage you to just read the scripture off the board. You can follow along with me if you'd like, but I'm going to bounce back and forth between these narratives because based on the individual who wrote the story, different elements of the history and the story were significant to them. And so they captured different pieces of the dialogue and different things that they heard along the way. And so sometimes it can be confusing to read the stories and go, well, how come Luke says this and then Mark says this and then John actually says this and when does these things happen in the stories? And I'm gonna try to put this together for you today and we'll do story time with Pastor Mike and kind of walk through these final hours of the life and ministry of Jesus here on earth before Easter. And uh, if you're just jumping in, I'm really excited that you're here. This is a great time to jump in and kind of hear the penultimate of the story of Jesus this week and next week. And I'll catch you up a little bit on what we've been talking about. But for the last several weeks, we recognize that about three months before the end of Jesus's uh, earthly ministry here uh, on earth, something changes in the story, in the narrative. It says that Jesus uh, made a decision that he wanted to celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem. And he shifts his life and ministry to start walking and taking his disciples to Jerusalem. It's a very big deal to celebrate Passover in Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, if you uh, are of Jewish descent, Descent, uh, today, or if you know someone of Jewish descent that celebrates Passover and they're not in Jerusalem for Passover, the very last line of the Passover meal is next year in Jerusalem. Like this desire to celebrate uh, the Passover meal in Jerusalem is a very big deal to their culture and has been for thousands of years. And so Jesus makes a pivot in his life and ministry and says, yeah, I eagerly desire to have Passover in Jerusalem. And they start moving that direction. As they're moving from town to town and heading that way, there's many stops along the way, and we've had some of those conversations, but perhaps the most significant one happens in John chapter 11, when a friend of the family that is connected to uh, Jesus uh, dies, and his name is Lazarus, and many of you have heard this story, and Lazarus dies, and, and, uh, and there's this incredible story, come on now, great stories, of Jesus showing up, standing before the tomb that has Lazarus in it, and by name saying, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus comes out of the grave. And if you read the King James Version, you get the best version of the story because it says he stinketh. And we recognize how, how, how creative and honest the scriptures are. And, and this is an epic moment in the life of Jesus and towards the end of his story because something powerful happens here. Obviously, a, an incredible miracle, Lazarus. And Lazarus is well known. And there's eyewitness testimony of people who had seen Lazarus die. They'd been part of the burial of Lazarus. He's been in the grave more than four days. That's enough time to stinketh for a dead body. And, and now he's alive. And it actually became a thing where people were doing 
doing pilgrimages to go see Lazarus, this man who'd been raised from the dead. And kind of the fame of Jesus escalates at a high level. And it also does something politically. For the first time, he now has not just religious enemies, he has political enemies. Because the religious ruling class of this time is a group called the Sadducees. Now, we talk about the Pharisees a lot. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, just to use common nomenclature, it's like the the Democrats and Republicans, okay, of their time. The two uh, political politically polarized group that are lobbying for uh, control in their government. Now, Rome is overall, but Rome is allowing the Jews to self-govern. And you have these two political classes who basically go at it, and, uh, and the Sadducees are the current ruling class. They have more seats at the table, and the table would be called the Sanhedrin. That's their, their council, that's their congress, however you would want to use that language. Now, that's a lot of information, but it's important because it breaks open the story for us and it gives us the nuance and the detail to recognize that this man who's been going from town to town and healing and performing food miracles and teaching and people are following him has been a threat to the Pharisees who at local government levels are like, he's getting too popular, we don't like him. Now he's become a political threat because one of the prime political issues of that time was whether or not you believed in an afterlife. The Sadducees who are in control don't believe in an afterlife. And so for Jesus to raise someone from the dead has massive political connotations. And the Sadducees are freaking out. Their entire platform is there's no life after death, right? Everything right now is all that matters. So... Now the Pharisees who hate this guy because he's so popular at the local level and the Sadducees who recognize that he's a political threat to them merge forces and make a decision and they justify it this way. They say, this guy's become so popular, he's gonna overthrow our whole system of government. Rome, who's actually in control of all of us, is gonna sniff this out and call it an uprising and they're gonna wipe us all out. So the best thing we can do is just kill Jesus. Now, it's pretty wild that these two religious classes of leadership come together and decide, let's break a commandment to solve this. But that's what they decide to do. And as a result, in these last couple months of Jesus's life, the scripture tells us he no longer went publicly from town to town. There's no longer a posse of thousands of people sometimes wandering uh, from place to place, but he slips away from the crowds and he interjects and has these powerful moments and conversations. But all the while he's working his way towards Jerusalem in time for Passover. So the story unfolds in the last several weeks. We've talked about some of these incredible moments. But if you look, John 12, 19, it says, so the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. They've plotted and planned to try to undercut him and solve him, but they're recognizing he has become very popular. Now, here's the thing. If you are hanging out with someone and they're raising people from the dead, you should probably just go with whatever they say. And that's kind of the way that people are acting. They're like, hey, we understand that, you know, these are our, our equivalent of our governmental leaders and religious leaders, but this guy raises people from the dead, so we're gonna just see what works with that thing. 
And so the crowds have really elevated their desire to not only follow Jesus, but to put him into a position of power. Now, they don't understand the kind of power that Jesus actually is interested in, but they're trying to do that. So we have this incredible scene that unfolds. And, and uh, this week, Palm Sunday, uh, uh, is, is a, uh, a time when we remember Jesus, after all of this time of kind of not being on the scene for a couple of months, uh, goes and he gets a, uh, his disciples get him a donkey. Come on now. And he rides into town. And as he rides into town, people are already celebrating. It's kind of like the 4th of July. You know, you have fireworks, but instead of fireworks, they have, uh, uh, <laughs> they have palms that they wave and celebrate and, and dance and sing. And they have particular songs that they sing to celebrate this holiday. Uh, and as they're singing it, they're singing Hosanna, which is kind of a little bit rebellious. Hosanna means Lord save us. And, uh, and they're waiting for a king to come and save them because they're being ruled by Rome. Now, the city swells with all of these Jews coming in to celebrate. And so Rome is on high alert, but it's not killing everybody who just sings kind of a national anthem song. But they're singing this song, Hosanna, Hosanna. And then Jesus comes in and instead of just singing the song to God, saying, God, save us, they turn and they sing the song to Jesus. Now, this is, has major political implications because essentially they're saying, not just God save us, but you represent God and save us. And they celebrate Jesus and they wave palm branches and they throw palm branches down and he comes in and, uh, and it becomes this hotbed, this political scene. And the Pharisees, they wanna, they wanna arrest him, but he's way too popular. And as we've talked about the last couple of weeks, they have no plan of how to, how to arrest him in the midst of these crowds. He's the most popular person there. But suddenly something changes. One of the disciples breaks ranks and Judas leaves the 12 and goes to the Pharisees and offers to make a deal to give them Jesus. After that, we have this incredible, incredible scene in the upper room. And Jesus, who's had a desire for so long to celebrate Passover or the Seder meal with his disciples, does that. And he establishes a new covenant. And he says, there's gonna be a new covenant between you and I, between God and man. He says, the new covenant is a new relational agreement between God and man. And uh, a couple weeks ago, we talked about the significance and the importance of the Passover meal. The Passover meal was something they had been celebrating for maybe 1,500 years as they go back to their time in Egypt. And they would go, this is how we remember that God rescued us out of Egypt and saved us from slavery and made us into a people and gave us a nation. And Jesus takes these elements, these things that they used in order to celebrate that. And he goes, you used to celebrate that, but now there's a new covenant. And when you do this, you're gonna celebrate me and what I'm doing for you. He blows their mind with these crazy statements. And he says, now there's going to be a new covenant and you're gonna do this Passover thing. You're gonna celebrate this meal. You're not just gonna wait for the holiday though of Passover. As often as you do it, you're gonna remember that I came and established a new system of connecting and being with God. It blows their mind. And, and he says there's some terms to the new covenant. It's now a relational covenant. And in John 13, 34, he says, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. And this is a covenant that's rooted in relationship and love. And a couple of weeks we talked about this. You can go back and catch up. From that scene, 
They leave the upper room and they go on the move and they're headed towards the Garden of Gethsemane. And last week we talked about this prayer that Jesus prays for the whole world and for himself and for his disciples in John chapter 17. And he's praying that there would be unity and that there'd be oneness in them. And, and uh, it's now in the middle of the night. They've left the upper room. They've celebrated. He's been praying and they've walked out of the, uh, of the city gates and the city gates would have been adorned with, uh, with vines on them. And he walks past those vines on the gate and through vineyards and he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. And he teaches them about remaining connected to him. And you've got to imagine the scene, it's late, they've celebrated. He's been talking about just ripping up the old covenant and instituting a new covenant. He's made some ridiculous claims about you're no longer gonna remember what you used to remember when you celebrate. Instead, you're gonna remember what's happening right now. And then he prays for them and he says, God, don't take them out of the world, keep them in the world, but protect them. They're going to be connected to you the way I'm connected to you. And that's my prayer for them, that they'd be one, not that they'd be the same, but they'd be one and connected and everyone doing their part. And you've got to imagine things have, it's probably gotten noticeable that Judas isn't around. He's been missing on the scene since the upper room. It suddenly seems a little bit darker and less encouraging. They have been waiting for him to say, and now we're gonna get our swords and start the revolution. And instead he's saying, I'm not gonna be with you much longer and I need you to come with me. And he goes to the garden of Gethsemane. And the scripture says he goes about a stone's throw away from them and he's praying out loud, loud enough that they can record what he says. And he says some things that seem insane for the person who was just getting God save us and who was politically so popular that the ruling class is afraid to try to arrest him. The one who they're counting on to basically start the revolution and overthrow Rome starts saying things like, like, Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me, but not my will, but thy will be done. They're tired, it's the middle of the night and they fall asleep. Jesus comes over and sees them asleep and he, I can imagine, gives them the little nudge. He's like, hey, can you guys do me a favor and pray while I'm praying and support me just for an hour? And he goes back off and he prays again. He comes back and they're asleep. This happens time and again. And finally, he's been praying and the scripture says he prays with so much passion to his father that sweat like drops of blood come out of his pores. He comes back to the disciples. They're snoozing again. It's the middle of the night. I don't know. It's four glasses of wine in the cedar meal. I'm not sure how they held it together as long as they have, but they're fried. They're in the garden. They're alone. It's just the 11 of them and Jesus. And suddenly they hear footsteps, not just footsteps, but like marching steps. Thump, 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 thump. It's Judas, and Judas is returned to the scene. He's located them. He's away from the crowds. It's the middle of the night. It's the ideal moment to arrest Jesus, and he has with him a contingent of temple guards, and the temple guards would be Jews who served at the temple. These aren't Roman guards, and they come, and they seize Jesus, Mark chapter 14, verse 46 says, the men seized Jesus and arrested him. And then one of them standing near drew his sword 
We believe this to have been Peter and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus responds, am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs to capture me? He's like, why did you send an armed guards to capture me? Do you see troops? Do you see armed men with me? Do we look like we're ready? This is fishermen and tax collectors that are walking around here. We are not armed to the teeth. And every day he says, I was with you. I was teaching in the temple courts. You didn't arrest me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. And then something very tragic happens in verse 50. It says, then everyone deserted him and fled. His closest guys, the folks he's just celebrated Passover with, who watched Lazarus walk out of the tomb, who broke a few loaves and some fishes and saw thousands of people get fed, who heard Jesus teach and speak life into them. They see a contingent of troops and the one that they're following surrenders. And Judas is with them and they break ranks and flee too. This begins the next several hours, the last several hours of the life of Jesus. It's an epic turning point in the story. This is um, completely unreasonable to the followers of Jesus up until this point. You can't be the Messiah and get arrested and taken in as a prisoner. This is not a good look for the one that we want to overthrow Rome. If the temple guards are too much for you, come on now. What chance do we have? And we don't have the crowds and the protection of that. And they've seen Jesus move right through people who were trying to arrest him before and they were unable to do it. And it's like suddenly the scene has changed and they don't also want to be arrested because they know where this is going and they flee into the night. They know there's a wanted dead or alive bounty on him. So Jesus is arrested and he's brought before the high priest. Now, what's interesting, if you were to look at a map of, uh, of Jerusalem and where the garden is, he's essentially walked from the upper room to the garden and then straight back to, towards the upper room. And he's in the house of Caiaphas and Caiaphas is the high priest. And he has an amazing house. As a matter of fact, you can go today to Jerusalem. They've excavated the home of Caiaphas. And um, if you were here after I got back from Jerusalem, I showed pictures of being in Caiaphas's house and uh, the the cellar of his house, which would have doubled as a prison, is there today, and you can stand in the place where Jesus would have been thrown into prison as exists today, and you can see the Garden of Gethsemane from there. It's just, well, I don't know, half, less than half a mile off. You can see where the up on the uh, Mount of Olives, the garden is from there, and they drag him back to Caiaphas's house, and there is a crowd that's gathered there, the plot has been hatched. Judas has been paid. They have summoned the temple authorities, the rest of the Sanhedrin, because they have to charge and execute Jesus quickly before the crowds kind of wake up and gather and say, where's our Messiah guy? And get excited. They have to get charges and turn him into a criminal. The events of this night, there's urgency and they need to make this happen. And so they drag him before the Sanhedrin, the ruling council, and Caiaphas is there and he's, he's leading the conversation and they say, we need to gather charges charges against him so that we can get him to a death sentence. And if you look at Mark chapter 14, you see what happens. It says, then some of them stood up and they gave false testimony against him saying, we heard him say, I'll destroy this temple made with human hands. And in three days, we'll build another not made with hands. Verse 
59, it says, yet even their testimony didn't agree. It was like their charge trumped up charges. And in order to, t- to get him, they have to have multiple witnesses of the trumped up charges, but they can't get the story right. They weren't paying attention like the disciples were. They just got bits and pieces of the story. So they're accusing him of saying things that are crazy and outlandish, but they can't line up their testimony to, to get him convicted. It says, then the high priest, Caiaphas, he stood up before them and he asked Jesus, aren't you going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? They're trying to get him to self-condemn. It says, but Jesus remained silent and he gave no answer. And again, the high priest asked, are you the Messiah? Are you the son of the blessed one? They asked the question, which they know if they get the answer will be everything they need. And finally, Jesus replies, verse 62, he says, I am. He goes, and you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus says, that's who I am. Verse 63, it says that the high priest tore his clothes and he says, why do we need any more witnesses? He asked, you have heard this blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him as worthy of death. The fix was in. So then some people began to spit at him and they blindfolded him and they struck them with their fists. Pretty brave, this ruling religious class, this politically charged environment. They blindfold him and spit on him and beat him. And they shout, prophecy, prophesy. And the guards took him and they beat him. It's the first beating of many that he's going to field this evening. So they get the charge that they need from him. They charge him with blasphemy and they have enough grounds out of their own religious laws to kill him for that charge. But they also know this, it's a very busy time in Jerusalem. And if they just kill somebody, it's going to cause a massive stir. Their plan has to be to activate Rome in order to have Rome do the dirty work. They're gonna need some help. And so for the first time in the story, we meet Pilate. Pilate has been the governor of this region of Rome that includes Jerusalem for maybe seven years at this point. And if uh, any indications of history are true, he hates his job. He's charged with overseeing this religious group of people that he doesn't believe uh, in or with. He doesn't agree with them. They're fundamentalists. They're pretty radical and crazy, but they're allowed to self-govern as long as they stay under the heel of Rome. He doesn't like Jerusalem. As a fact, he doesn't live in Jerusalem. He's got a palace there, but he lives out by the coast um, because it's just way nicer by the Mediterranean than, than it is right there. But it is the time of Passover and it is the time of the, uh, of the feast. And so Jerusalem swells by tens of thousands of people as people come. And so it's very important that a couple times a year when the big feasts are happening, that Pilate is there and governing this unruly group of people that, uh, that he is responsible for. And so we meet Pilate who has a, an aversion to the Jews and you'll see it come through this whole storyline, um, but also is in charge and representing Rome. And, uh, and so we see this next thing, uh, John 18, 28, it says, then the looters took Jesus from Caiaphas, that's the house of Caiaphas, to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it's early morning, so the night has kind of uh, uh, ended and the day is beginning to break. Now listen to this. Oh my goodness. And to avoid ceremonially 
ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. I want you to catch the irony of this. Passover, it's, it's usually two days of, of this Passover meal. And so Jesus has celebrated the first night with them. And now it's going to be the second night. And these are religious ruling class politicians. And they get to be at very pristine positions at big Passover meals. But part of that is becoming and remaining ceremonially clean according to their traditions. It would violate, they would become ceremonially unclean if they entered the house of a Gentile. So they need to have a conversation with Pilate about trumped up charges and murdering Jesus, but it is offensive to them to think about actually walking through the door of Pilate because that's going to make them unclean. I, do you hear what's happening in the story, guys? It's crazy, this, this nuance and hypocrisy that's coming through this leadership team. Verse 29, so Pilate came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? I'm imagining Pilate's tweaked. It's early in the morning. A crowd has shown up at the palace, banging on the door. They won't come in and tell him what it is. So he's got to get dressed, come out, and be like, what is going on? And look at their response. If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Did you catch that? What charges? Don't ask about the charges. He's a criminal. We're just bringing you a criminal. You don't need to ask too many questions, Pilate. Translation, bro, don't worry about it. Just kill this guy for us. Pilate said, take him yourselves. Judge him by your own law. I'm in John 18, 31. It says, judge him by your own law, but we have no right to execute anyone they objected. He goes, listen, it's early and I'm not concerned. And if you just tell me he's a criminal, Whatever, you have laws, you have the ability to self-govern. And they're like, but we can't do the death penalty. We can punish him. We need a death penalty conviction here, guys. Verse 32, it says, this took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was gonna die. Verse 33, it says, Pilate then went back inside the palace and summoned Jesus. I want you to catch this. They've got Jesus, they've beat him up, blindfolded, spit on him so far. They've drug him across town. They've drug him to the palace. They're all outside with him there. And they want Pilate to just order a death penalty. And so Pilate goes, oh, you guys are too good to have this conversation in my palace. I know you won't come in. If you want me to talk to him, we're gonna talk inside. <laughs> this isn't the plan that they were hoping for. They're left outside and none of them wanna break ranks and become unclean and miss Passover. And so they are now allowing Jesus to speak to Pilate. He summoned Jesus and he asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Verse 34, is that your own idea, Jesus said, or did others talk to you about me? <laughs> Look at Jesus just picking at this tender spot. He's like, what is, what is this conversation? Pilate says, am I a Jew? Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you've done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were true, my servants would have fought and they would prevent my arrest by these Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. He goes, I'm not in the kingdom business the way you're in the kingdom business. You think it's about controlling people and power and resources here on earth. And my kingdom's from somewhere else. If I was the kind of king you're thinking of, then I would have sounded the alarm. All the palm branch wavers would have went out. They would have grabbed everybody and they would have just ran right over the temple guards. And we'd have started by up of overthrowing them. He goes, that's not what it's about. 
Pilate's heard the only words he really cares about, though. <laughs> Verse 37, he goes, so you're a king then, <laughs> said Pilate. He's like, okay, now I know what we're talking about here. Now I know what these charges are about. Regardless of what kind of kingdom, you're claiming to be a king. That's all I needed to hear. Those are charges enough under the empire. Now, this isn't a death sentence kind of thing yet, but Pilate now has permission to try to appease this angry mob. He can have him beaten, he can have him imprisoned, he can do, like everything is on the table now because he's heard Jesus say, yes, you have a kingdom, you must then be a king. Jumping back over to Luke. Pilate is asking these questions of him. I'm in Luke 23, verse six, and he says, on hearing this, Pilate asked, what? Well, where, he's asking where he's from, and he says that he hears asked if the man was in fact a Galilean. Now, this is an important distinction. It says because when he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at the time. You have to catch this. He wants to go ahead and punish him. He really doesn't want to deal with him. The crowds are going crazy out there. At some point during the conversation, he brings them out and he's like, who is this Jesus? And they're like, yeah, he's been causing up trouble. He started in Galilee and he's all the way to here now. And he goes, oh, you're a Galilean? That's not in my jurisdiction. The area you're from is actually under Herod's jurisdiction. I'm gonna hand him, and here's what's awesome. Since it's Passover, Herod's here because everybody's here and Herod has his own palace. Now you're familiar with the name Herod because if you know the Christmas story, you know that Herod was the king, I'm air quoting king of Jerusalem at that time under Roman law governing. This is Herod's son. Uh, that Herod who ordered all the two-year-old and younger babies to die has now passed and his son has taken over and his son is just as wicked as Herod the Great and uh, very, uh, very politically charged and entrenched with Rome. But Pilate is like, I can dump this problem on Herod. Jesus, who's now been beaten, dragged from place to place to place, he's like, take him out of here. This was not the plan that the high priest and the, and the uh, Sanhedrin wanted. They just wanted Pilate to kill him, but they can't go against Pilate's orders. So Pilate says, take him to Herod. Where am I at here? Verse seven, verse eight. When Herod saw Jesus, so he goes to Herod. They drag him to Herod's house and, they, and Herod sees Jesus. And look, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he'd been wanting to see him. And from what he had heard about him, he hoped he might see him perform some kind of sign. So Herod, who is not Jewish by birth, but is the king of the Jews, has heard a lot about Jesus going through the countryside and healing and doing things. It's festival time. There's been some alcohol consumed. There's a now sighting of Jesus. And none of these guys have been able to get close to Jesus before. So when he finds out they're bringing me Jesus, that's awesome. He's the one with the tricks, right? He does the cool things. And he's like, bring him to me. Maybe he'll, you know, guess which card I have or something. Like he, he's minimized his impression of who Jesus is. He doesn't see him as anything but this, uh, this uh, leader of these people who somehow has some ability to fool and trick them. He wants to see what the fuss is about. So Herod asks him, he's like, hey, perform something for me. Do a trick, verse nine. And it's Herod, he plies him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. 
The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there and they were vehemently accusing him. These guys have been following him from place to place and they're like, we need to execute him. He's committed blasphemy. He's threatening us and threatening Rome and threatening the status quo. And, and Herod's like, are you doing this? And Jesus is giving no answer. And he's like, well, can you do a trick? And Jesus is giving no answer. And Herod's like, this is not nearly as fun in the morning as I thought it was going to be. Verse 11, it says, then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. I said, some king you are, some entertainer you are, and it says, dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate actually became friends, and before this, they had been enemies. I love that Luke gives the history of that. These two men caught in this days of our lives type scene seeing Jesus get dragged from place to place and the crowd wanting something that they were in power to give but saw no reason to do. They became friends in all of this. So Jesus, again, now he's in an elegant robe and he's drugged back to Pilate. It's a little bit later now. Pilate called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people and he said, you brought me this man as one who was inciting people to rebellion. Yet I've examined him in your presence and I haven't found any basis for the charges that you're making against him. He's like, listen, I'm asking him questions and none of this looks like incitement to violence. None of this looks like overthrowing Rome. And then he says, and neither has Herod for he sent him back to us. And as you can see, this man's done nothing to deserve death. Pilate trying to talk reason into the mob. You ever try to talk reason to the mob? It doesn't work well. It doesn't work well. So he goes, let me appease you guys. Therefore, I'll punish him and then release him. Translation, let me just torture him a little bit so we can get on with our day. John chapter 19, verse one picks up the story and it says, then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. Now, I'm gonna talk about this a little bit for the rest of the time that we have together, but we just have to be honest. We tell this story to children. And because we tell this story to children, we PG the story very often. At worst, maybe by the time they hit youth group age, we PG 13 it. You just have to understand, church, this is rated our violence from this point forward. And the picture of what happens to Jesus is going to get bloodier and harsher and darker says, then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. And you have to understand, there was no need to explain this any further to the readers in the first century. They understood what that meant. A flogging was something that Rome would do. And it actually had policies because they were trying to not kill someone, but bring someone to the point of death with violence. And the way they did it is there would be two Roman soldiers and they would take what's called a cat of nine tails, which is a whip that uh, has a, a, a stream of leather straps coming off of it and metal barbs connected to the edge of this straps. And they would tie someone to a post and those two soldiers would alternate, taking turns, swinging this this weapon and it was flayed out and it would strike them on the back and it would wrap around to the front and it would dig into the flesh and then they would rip. And the pain wasn't the whip, it was the rip, tearing flesh and meat and blood from the intended. As a matter of fact, they used two because the energy that it took to swing and then pull and rip 
was exhausting, so two soldiers would alternate their swings. And many people died just from a flogging. It was a very tenuous type of punishment because not only would it rip the skin in the flesh, but eventually guts and other things that were exposed on your underbelly as you begin to rip. There's not a lot of layers to get to things that are pretty important. Jesus was beaten and flogged and and tortured in this way. And this plays a large part in the scene we're going to see at the cross, the amount of punishment that he's already taken in his body. He's been beaten He's been spit on, he's been drugged all over town, and now he's been very severely injured. These soldiers who are kind of the torture squad, these are now Roman soldiers who are pretty proficient killers and torturers. It says, verse 2, they twist together a crown of thorns and they place it on his head and they clothed him in a purple robe. We know where the robe came from now. And they went up to him again, and they were saying, Hail there, king of the Jews! And they slapped him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I'm bringing him out to you and to let you know that I still find no basis for a charge against him. Here's Jesus now, bloody skin and flesh ripped from his body, a purple robe and a crown of thorns thrust upon his head and blood and perhaps entrails and whatever else all exposed. He's been beaten and Pilate thinks surely this will satiate their need for blood. Surely this is enough punishment for someone who we have no real charge for. Verse 5, when Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said, here is the man. He's expecting them to soften now. He's expecting their conscience to kick in and the violence and the grotesqueness of this to shut down, but it doesn't. Verse 6 is as soon as the chief priest and the officials saw them, saw him, they shouted, crucify him crucify but Pilate answers you take him and crucify him as for me I find no basis for that charge he knows though that the Jews can't kill him he knows they're powerless that they're subject to Rome but he's making a bold statement saying if you want to go and do something reckless and crazy you take the consequences of doing that verse 7 the Jewish leaders insisted these are sharp political They've raised to the top of their leadership. They are aware of how the system works. And he says, we have a law, verse seven. And according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. Now we get the charge for the first time to Pilate. Pilate's never heard the charges against him. Now the charge is this man claimed to be the son of God. Now this is a heavy charge in the Jewish culture, but this charge actually has significance in the Roman culture as well. Based on their hierarchy of deities and what they believe, no one gets to say they're a son of a God unless that person is Caesar. This is a very politically charged charge. The tone is going to change in Pilate from hearing this charge. They have played Pilate like a fiddle as much as he is in charge. This group of the Sanhedrin, these 
these two groups, these Sadducees and Pharisees, the leadership ruling class, the 70 of them plus the high priest, they have played the notes to get Pilate and Rome to dance, to get to this point where Jesus has been beaten and flogged. A couple things have not gone their way. They weren't expecting Herod to get involved, but now they have him before Pilate and Pilate's trying to take his foot off the gas and they said, oh, did we mention what the charge is? He claimed to be the son of God. And this changes everything. Look at verse eight. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. He's recognizing the political implications to this. He's recognizing his own career and his own life are now invested in the outcome of this trial. This is a serious charge. It says he went back inside the palace. I love this because every time he goes in the palace, the conversation ends because they're afraid to walk through the doors and talk to him. So he knows that they're not gonna come in and get defiled by talking to him there. And he looks again at Jesus and he's like, where do you come from? Jesus, but Jesus gave him no answer. He's frustrated. He's like, if you say you're from God, then I got problems, but Jesus won't give him an answer. Verse 10, this is shocking to him. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said. Don't you realize I have the power to either free you or crucify you? This is the moment. These are tried and tested Roman soldiers. When someone's been flogged and beaten, this is when they talk. This is when they say whatever you want to stop the punishment and to stop the process. This is when they swear allegiance to Rome or at least pray for a quick death. It says, I have the power to do that for you. And that statement gets Jesus' mouth to move again. You have the power? Jesus answered, verse 11, you'd have no power over me if it weren't given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of the greater sin. He says, you don't have power in this place. He says, from then on, Jesus tried to set, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you're no friend of Caesar. And anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. You see, they're twisting the knife into Pilate. They know he's afraid that if he looks like he's soft on someone who wants to overthrow Caesar, it might cost him his life. Verse 13, when Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat and a place known as the stone pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. Verse 14, it was on the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. And he said, here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away. Crucify him, crucify him. And he says, should I crucify your king, Pilate asks. And then listen to their statement. We have no king but Caesar. Can you imagine the ruling class of the Jews saying there is no one in authority over us but Caesar? That's the thing that happens. Come on, we see this every day. When we shift our our allegiance away from our faith and away from God into the hands of man or into political systems, we see this all the time. People begin to blindly follow things that aren't the Lord and something shifts, and can you, this is the ruling class, the high priests, and they're shouting out, there is so much bloodlust in them. They are shouting out, crucify him, crucify him. We have no allegiance to any king but Caesar. And suddenly the scene of the crucifixion happens. 
Up until this point, the story's been told in minute detail, every moment on display for all of us. But it says that finally, Pilate handed him over to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Now listen, guys. For 400 years after the time of Jesus, there was no religious art or depictions of the crucifixion. It was banned and people didn't want to see it. The, the fact that you wear, uh, some, some of us wear crosses or, or, or kind of reverence that, that was for like 400 years that didn't happen because people saw crucifixions and they were not pretty. And the scene changes. They've been shouting, he's been beaten. They've manipulated Pilate and they're crying out and they're saying, crucify him, crucify him. And the scene that happens next, the authors of scripture, none of them clearly depict what it was. And they're shouting and they take Jesus and the soldiers bring him to the cross and they bind his hands and his feet. And they take three nails. And early in the morning, shouts of crucify him happen. And ringing out across the hill of Golgotha, you hear. And they erect the cross. And they lift him on the hill. And Jesus is displayed our savior on a criminal's cross. Verse 18 says they crucified him with two others, one on each side. And then Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened it to the cross. And it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. The story that we tell is always so sanitized. It would have been bloody. It would have been painful. There would have been screaming. There would have been pain. He's already bleeding and bloodied. And he's erected on the cross on display for everyone to see. And it says, as evening approached, Matthew there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph. He himself had become a disciple of Jesus. And he goes to Pilate. Jesus breathes his last. They actually go with spears and they poke the other two criminals to cause them to bleed out faster so they'll die. They go to poke Jesus and they recognize he's already dead. He's been beaten and scourged. He's breathed his last and gruesome, but prisoners that were tortured that way were not afforded burials. They simply took them down from the cross and threw them into the pile in the valley of Gehenna and let the dogs do their work. And Joseph of Arimathea, remember everyone has deserted him sees what's happening and he's wealthy and has resource and he goes to Pilate and he says, listen, maybe he wasn't what we all hoped he was because he can't be, he's died. But certainly he deserves better than that and some exchange of goods or wealth or something happens and he negotiates and says, can I have 
the body. Verse 28. And so Pilate orders that it's been given to him. And this is a special concession. And it says, Joseph took the body and he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth. And he placed it in his own new tomb that he had had cut out of the rock. And he rolled a big stone in front of the entrance of the tomb and he went away. And Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite of the tomb. And night falls in Jerusalem. And the scene of that day is etched into the memories. This is one of the most memorable Passovers anyone can remember. From Hosanna and the entrance 24 hours before to crucify him to dead and in a tomb. And people are sleeping. Some are sleeping uneasy. Devastated that this person they had followed is dead. Despite all the teaching that they had heard from him, none could comprehend because up until that point, everyone who goes into the grave stays in the grave. And so they're lost and and broken and hopes and dreams are shattered. And I can imagine some had been sharpening swords, preparing for the revolution. Others had been thinking, we're going to play a role and this is the Messiah and God's going to do something. It's going to be like the first Passover. There's going to be plagues and amazing, but nothing. He's dead. And some are sleeping easy. Religious leaders and elite that had been politically charged have have averted disaster in their mind. This upstart rebel rouser who had gotten so much attention claiming all these claims, they'd managed to kill him. And they'd done it without getting unclean. They could still eat dinner tonight. Pilots thinking, ah, there's six more days of this festival and finally everyone will leave and I can go back to my beach house and this group of rebellious people that don't know they're conquered. Get off my case. And night falls and somewhere in the night, one of the high priests who had been around what Jesus had said put something together and he says, we, we got to put a guard at the tomb. And the conversation must have happened something like, do you remember that stuff he said about temples and three days? And like, we should put a guard at the tomb. And so they decide to place a guard at the tomb. Verse 20, uh, Matthew 27, verse 62, it says, the next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees, they go bother Pilate again. I guess they're willing to go in the the house now, it doesn't say, but it says, sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, the deceiver said, after three days, I'll rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, the disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people he's been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. They have actually got a better rap on what Jesus has been talking about than the disciples do at this point. (laughs) They've put it together. They're wary and they've thought of everything. Verse 65, Pilate says, take a guard and go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and they made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. I wonder sometimes as we read this, how do we get all of this information? And one of the powerful realities is that many, the scripture tells us of these actual people, these religious leaders, they became later followers of Jesus. What a powerful testimony that they became, these guys became followers of Jesus. Why? Because something was about to happen 
that changes everything. But here's what I know and what I want you to know. At this point in the story and in the life of Jesus, there were no Christians. They deserted him. They fled. They were afraid. And something, something was going to change because nobody expected to see Jesus again. No one believed that the guy they put their faith in had been captured and tortured and beaten and executed. They're shell-shocked at this moment. And here's what I want you to catch, church. Will you stand with me? We're gonna, I'm going to hand you off to Easter with this reality. Sometimes the situation, come on now, doesn't look so good from the outside. But God has a plan. And for some of you, just hearing this story may have rekindled and reignited in your heart and in your life the sense that, yeah, you've been through some stuff, but your story doesn't end here. And next week, we're gonna have a conversation about why Easter matters. Because in the midst of all of this, come on now, Easter's coming and a new day's coming and a new plan and a new hope and a new life and a good future. So Jesus, we are incredibly humbled as we walk through the story of your life and what you gave for us and what you went through as it comes alive and jumps off the page for us for maybe the first time since we were kids, we visit it with a, a lack of better term, rated our understanding of what you went through and did for all of us, innocently facing these incredible, incredible events to pay the price. It was our sin that was nailed there, not yours. You did that for us. And I am so grateful that its story doesn't end here. As a matter of fact, the end of this story is the beginning of all of our story. And so we look forward next week with hope to the life and the dream that you have for each and every one of us. And we thank you for it in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen and amen.